0: And today we're going to talk about when life becomes difficult. You know, no matter how much you plan, no matter how smart you are, no matter how spiritual you are, sooner or later, life goes sideways. Things go wrong. Problems come, trials come, persecution comes. You have things that happen that break your heart, make you angry, confuse you. And make you wonder where God is in the middle of all of that and I want to reassure you that if that's where you're at or if that's where you've been or if that's where you're going there is good news because God's word is full of stories and full of truth that help guide us through those times and also teach us about how other people went through those things and it's kind of nice to realize that the that the names that we heard from the time we were little if you went to church when you were young who were the heroes, that these people were also very real individuals with very real problems and very real humanity, and we can learn a lot from them. So, with that in mind, take out your Bibles, or if you use your phone, do whatever you do to get to a Bible, and get to the book of Genesis, chapter 32. I'm going to tell you a familiar story about a familiar guy named Jacob. I'm just going to pick up the story, and I'm going to assume that you've read Genesis, or at least know this story somewhat, because I'd, I don't want to go all the way back to Adam and Eve and give you the backstory. I'm going to sort of pick up in the middle here of a story having to do with Jacob. If you remember, Jacob had a twin brother whose name was Esau, and Esau, in a matter of seconds, had been born before his brother Jacob, and so therefore, according to Hebrew culture, he was the firstborn and therefore entitled to the firstborn birthright. And that was not God's plan. And so Jacob, in cahoots with his mother, Rebecca, made a plan to sort of help God. And his plan was basically to deceive his father, Isaac, who was dead set on giving the firstborn blessing to his older son, Esau, even though he knew Esau did not deserve it, and was not the one that God would want him to do that for. But he loved Esau, and he wanted to sort of do what he thought was best and do what was culturally acceptable. And so Jacob, with his mom, deceives his father and, in essence, steals the birthright. And then as soon as he does, his brother Esau basically tells him, "Um, I'm going to kill you for doing that. As soon as dad dies, you and I have an appointment, and I think we both know who's going to lose that little encounter. Jacob apparently believed him because then he immediately, again with help from his mom, fled and went to a distant land where his mother's relatives lived, ostensibly to go and find a wife. He Eventually got there, and he does, in fact, fall in love with a beautiful young woman named Rachel, and he wants to marry her, but then he doesn't count on the fact that her father, a man named Laban, was even more deceitful and tricky than he was. And so he winds up getting hornswoggled, not into just marrying Rachel, but to marrying her sister Leah, and eventually, which is kind of ironic because Jacob had just come from deceiving someone, and now he is on the other end of it. But... Despite all that, he settles down in this area. He goes to work for Laban, his father-in-law now, and uh, married to two women, he begins to have a gaggle of kids. And he's greatly blessed by God. And as soon as he's set financially, and his children are a little older, he gets homesick, and he decides he wants to return back to the land of his father. So he makes plans to do that, and he sets out. But there's a problem. And the problem is is that Esau is still in the area. And the question in Jacob's heart was, is Esau still angry? And does he intend to keep the promise that he made about killing me? So once he's underway, he sends word to Esau with some messengers. He finds out that Esau is no longer living with his father, but he has moved to what today would be the East Bank It's the eastern bank of the Jordan River in modern Jordan. But he's still close enough by, so he sends him a message, and the message has three points to it. Number one, he tells his brother, here's where I've been. I've been working for my father-in-law for the last 20 years, so I haven't been hiding or sneaking around or plotting against you. I've been working and building a family. Number two, I'm now wealthy. Which means this whole conflict that we had over the birthright really isn't all that important anymore. I'm not here to fight you for dad's inheritance or estate. And then thirdly, he tells him, I truly regret the fact that you and I have had this conflict. And what I'm hoping for is that there can be peace between us. Is that possible? The messengers leave, Jacob continues his journey, eventually the messengers return and they say, well, we spoke to your brother Esau. Jacob says, what did he say? They say, well, he didn't say much, but he's coming here to meet you, and he's bringing with him a small army of 400 men. <laughs> Jacob that's it? He doesn't really respond one way or the other to what I said? No, no, he's just coming with an army. says he has something he wants to say to you. Of course, Jacob begins to panic. Why else would he be coming with 400 men? He's not coming, you know, for a good reason. This this looks really bad. And so he begins to fear and to get stressed, the same way you and I do when stuff is looming in our life, when life goes sideways and we don't know what to do and we start getting afraid. Sooner or later, everybody faces that. The only issue is how are you going to respond? What are you going to do? Well, today we're going to learn what Jacob did, which brings us to our passage, Genesis chapter 32, starting at verse 24. What we find out with Jacob is, is that he makes plans. He gets his family, as most any father and husband would do. He he takes, in this case, spouses along with his children, and he sends them across into the land closer to where his father is, and he puts a separation of, of water between them And then he decides that he's going to wait for his brother and for this ultimate showdown all by himself. And once his family's safely at a distance, hopefully far enough away, he has put his servants in charge of trying to protect them, and he's going to stand and face his brother all by himself, which is incredibly courageous, really. But then he has a night after all of this has happened, he has a whole night to think about what's going to happen because he knows Esau's going to arrive very shortly afterward. You ever had a night like that where you know something's looming? You probably don't get much sleep, and you begin to try to figure out, what am I going to do? What am I going to say? What's going to happen when my brother gets here? The last thing he told me was, I'm going to kill you. And now he's coming with 400 men. Verse 24. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. And now we're going to come into one of the most surreal stories of the Old Testament. If you get the picture, Jacob's sitting probably on a rock somewhere or maybe on a mat. I have no doubt that because he's alone, he's more than likely interacting with his God, probably praying, probably asking for help the way if you've been brought up and you're a true believer, that maybe hopefully would be your instinct too. And you're wondering what God is going to do. Does he hear me? Does he see me? Is it going to be all right? And all of a sudden, God shows up, but in a most peculiar way. It says that a man shows up. We're told later on in verse 28 that this man was actually the Lord, which in theological terms is a theophany. It's, it's God taking human form in order to interact With his creation and in this case god has taken human form in order to interact with jacob and he interacts in a very very unique way it says that he began to wrestle with him now get the picture jacob's sitting here minding his own business he's afraid i mean he's probably really afraid and he's praying trying to seek god he's hoping for rescue He's hoping for deliverance. He doesn't know what to do. By nature, Jacob is manipulative. And manipulative people, when they get in trouble and when they get afraid, they become, call me crazy, manipulative. And so he's probably trying to figure out, okay, well, I got over on my brother once. How can I get over him again? What could I say? What if I said this? What if I tried that? So he's probably thinking in terms of, what can I use by my own human resources to get ahead here? And instead, God shows up, we're told, in the form of a wrestler. Imagine that. A wrestler. You're minding your own business. You're praying that God will deliver you. And all of a sudden, stone-cold Steve Austin shows up and says, It's on! And they start wrestling. Right then and right there. The first time I read this, I thought to myself, What is going on? Why would God show up in the form of a wrestler? You're going to find out that it makes perfect sense the more you know about Jacob. You know what's interesting in Psalm 18:26 it says something very interesting about God. It says to the pure speaking about God to the pure you show yourself pure but to the devious you show yourself shrewd. Jacob for all of his later heroism is a devious guy. He's a shrewd, manipulative guy who fancies himself basically smarter than everybody else. He always thinks that he can sort of outthink everyone else. Well, now he's in a real jam. And he's probably thinking, I don't know how I'm going to figure this out. I really need God to help me. And God says, "Okay, I'm going to help you. And then he shows up, and he jumps him. And they start wrestling. And I don't mean for a little while. They wrestle all night long. I don't think that was an accident. I think this whole wrestling match was an object lesson for Jacob. I think God had some things that he wanted to teach Jacob, and I think this was going to be a turning point in Jacob's life, this little wrestling match. I think that what Jacob needed to learn was that he had spent his whole life He had wasted years wrestling with other people, wrestling with circumstances, wrestling with life in order to try to gain an advantage, in order to to make his life as profitable and as easy as it could be. And I think what God wanted to teach him today was that, yes, life is a struggle, but not against the things that you think. I think that... God wanted Jacob to begin to wrestle with the right things and, more importantly, with the right person. I read a quote from Warren Wiersbe one time. He said that God always meets us at whatever level he finds us in order to lift us up to where we need to be. Verse 25, when the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled. With the man. Once again, this man that's wrestling with Jacob, we're told, is God Almighty. And then, what on earth is it talking about when it says that the man could not overpower Jacob? How is this possible? By all accounts, Jacob is probably somewhere in the vicinity of 90 years old. You know, I I love seniors, but I think I could take a 90 year old especially if I were God. So in what way, shape, or form can God not overpower a 90-year-old man, right? Even if he's in good shape. Well, we see in the same passage that this mysterious man, this wrestler, as soon as he wants to put a stop to the wrestling match, all he really kind of does is just tap Jacob's hip, and that's really the end of the fight. So what we can see from that is when it says that he couldn't overpower him, we're not talking about physically overpowering Jacob. This wrestling match, remember, it's an object lesson. It's a metaphor, if you will. It's God's way of demonstrating for Jacob that his mindset was all wrong. His heart was all wrong. It needed to be transformed. It needed to be changed. And so he's teaching him about that. And I think that what was really going on here wasn't a physical wrestling match, but a spiritual wrestling match. This was a battle of will. And this was God trying to, in a very real sense, break Jacob's stubborn will for his own good. And so he wrenches his hip. Jacob needs to stop resisting God. This wrestling match was proof of that. This this wrestling match really represents Jacob's life. And God is teaching him, you need to understand this is a match that you're not going to win. And you need to not win it. And I'm going to prove that to you. And I thought about that. When we're facing difficulties... We often, like Jacob, turn first to our own resources. Sometimes we turn to money. Sometimes we turn to our abilities and our talents or our intellect. Sometimes we turn to other people. Sometimes we try to turn circumstances to our advantage. We try everything we can to settle things without getting God involved because He's very unpredictable. And besides, we like the idea, the illusion, really, of power and so God is teaching Jacob that isn't the way it works and when we resist God in this spiritual battle like Jacob we always wind up doing our self harm and God will wound us sometimes you need to remember that if he needs to God will wound you in order to bring you where you need to be verse 26 then the man said let me go it is daybreak but Jacob replied I will not let you go unless you bless me let me go this is God's way of saying to Jacob now get the picture it started off as something of a wrestling match and Jacob's probably thinking to himself I'm doing all right here I'm doing all right I'm winning he hasn't pinned me yet well now God says all right this enough is enough he touches his hip and Jacob, like most 90-year-olds who would, who would get in a wrestling match, my hip, and he can't do it anymore. And all of a sudden, now it's not a wrestling match. Now it's Jacob, really, I'm convinced, hanging on to this man's leg. And really, the picture is, let me go. And Jacob, no, no. No. We may not be wrestling anymore, but I'm not going to let you go unless you bless me, which is an indication that Jacob understood who he was dealing with. He knew this wasn't any ordinary man, and we'll get to that more in a minute. But God is saying to him, Jacob, you need to let go. You're already hurt from this thing, and it's time for you to quit fighting me. Jacob says, not unless you bless me. And I think this is the turning point for Jacob. Jacob has gone from thinking somehow that in his own physical strength that he can emerge victorious in this circumstance, and now he's just desperate. Now he's just trying to hang on. And now he's just saying, the most important thing is that I need you to bless me. Blessing involves care, protection, trust, and understanding that in our own strength we cannot face the things that overwhelm us in life, and therefore we have to turn to the only one who can What's really interesting is that Jacob's name actually meant to grab the leg. If you remember when he was born, his brother Esau emerged first with Jacob hanging on to Esau's leg. That's why they called him Jacob. It means to grab the leg. Where's Jacob at now? I have no doubt hanging on to God's leg. And because Jacob finally is starting to get his mind and his heart right, I think God is now going to begin to do what he needs him to do. Verse 27, the man asked, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. I think when God says this, did God need to be informed of what Jacob's name was? Of course not. So why would he ask this question? It wasn't for God's benefit. It was for Jacob. What he's saying to Jacob is, how do you identify yourself? When people ask you to identify yourself, what do you say? Jacob. Jacob, I, it's the name that my parents gave me. I'm the leg grabber. And God says, verse 28, Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. Israel. Because you have struggled with God, and with humans, and have overcome." This name change that he gives Jacob is indicative of what God will do in the life of any person who truly surrenders to him, and that is, he will reshape you from the inside out. You will no longer be defined by the way you have seen yourself, or the way others have seen you, or the way you have been. You will be redefined from the inside out. That's the way character always changes, from the inside out. We always try to change people from the outside in, but it's the work of God to change people from the inside out. And it starts with this renaming. And the renaming is from the heel grabber to what Israel means. is means someone who struggles with God and who overcomes, which is really what life is all about. Struggling with God and overcoming because of his strength, not our own. And it says, you've also struggled with humans. I think this is a reference on God's part to the way Jacob had really gone about in his life. In his whole life, he had been struggling with other people. He'd struggled with his own father, Isaac, over the birthright blessing. He'd struggled with his father-in-law, Laban, who was just as crafty, if not more so, than he was. He was just a little bit smarter and better at it. And he was in a struggle right now with Esau, his own brother, and wondering what was going to happen. And I think this is God's way of reassuring him and telling him, you're going to overcome even your own brother, but not in the way you think. Verse 29, Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he, the man, replied, why do you ask my name? then he blessed him there. It's fascinating. Jacob wants to know this man's name, and obviously we're told this man was God Almighty, and God tells him, basically, I'm not going to tell you, which is unique and interesting because later on when Moses asks him the same question, God has no problem telling him his name. Yahuwah is what the Hebrews say, and actually they don't say it. They don't speak the name of God because they believe it's too holy. But it meant, I am who I am. So God gave Moses his name, but he won't tell Jacob why. We're not told. But I think it's rather obvious because I think Jacob actually knew who he was dealing with here. I think he knew that this was God, and I'll prove it to you in just a second. Verse 30. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. Boom. Did he know who he was? Yes. Yes, he knew. Because he names the, the area where they're at, the place where I saw God, face to face. And that's what Peniel means. He says, and yet my life was spared. Which means that Jacob understood that to deal with God sometimes is dangerous business. The Bible says that we serve a holy God. It's a, It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And the Israelis believed that to have an encounter with God was to die because God is holy and we are sinful, and those two things tend to cancel each other out in a violent way with holiness surviving and sin being obliterated. So Jacob realizes that his encounter with God here was really a demonstration of God's grace. Verse 31, the sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Now, it's interesting. This encounter leaves Jacob wounded for the rest of his life. We're told that for the rest of his life, Jacob walked with a limp. And Jacob apparently taught all of his children that this limp was because of his encounter with God, and this encounter with God was a holy, life-changing thing. As a matter of fact, my name, according to God, is no longer leg-grabber. I'm now the God-struggler, God-overcomer. And I believe Jacob's character shifts and change from this. But isn't it interesting that the very thing that God used to rename and change his character and to change his life left him wounded? Remember that, because that's going to be important in just a minute. All right. In the time we have left, let's take a look at some hidden blessings that come when life gets really difficult, when you're facing trials. I have no doubt that each of you have faced trials probably more than a few are facing trials and certainly you will eventually face trials. And again, what we need to learn is is that those things can oftentimes be very productive. Some of the greatest lessons that I have learned about my God have come through dark, difficult times. And so I'm going to give you three things that you're probably not of the mindset now of being a blessing, but I'm going to tell you that it really is. The first is struggles. When you struggle in life, God will often, almost always, use that for a good purpose. We're told that Jacob wrestled with God all night until daybreak. i got to tell you, that I have wrestled with God through many nights. When I was afraid, when I was being attacked, when I was being doubted, when I was confused about something and didn't understand what God was doing. Would that he would explain himself to me all the time, but up to this point he hasn't decided to do that. When I was facing something that was painful, when I had suffered a loss, the kind of difficult stuff in life that nobody likes, but that God promises that he can use for a good purpose. That's why James says this ridiculous thing. Consider it joy, James 1, verses 2 and 3. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Perseverance. In other words, when life gets difficult, God uses those things for a good purpose. Now, He doesn't say celebrate hardship. What He says is recognize, reconcile it, joy, because it's going to have a good purpose. I always compare it to doing exercise. I have never enjoyed doing exercise. When I was young, I didn't like doing exercise. But the older I get, I appreciate it more because I know that exercise leads to a good purpose. So also with life's difficulties. They are the kinds of things that God uses to teach us about Himself. How else can you ever learn about whether or not God is faithful when life gets really difficult unless you go through difficult times? Are we supposed to take other people's words for it? You need experiential knowledge. You have to wrestle with God on your own just like Jacob did. And it is in those those struggles that life supplies the proving ground for the fact that God can be trusted. The second thing that is a hidden blessing, and that is swerves. And by that I mean when life turns abruptly when you don't expect it. For example, when God gives you a new name. Surprise! Surprise! God is full of those kinds of surprises, where you can be walking along, minding your own business, and all of a sudden, everything changes radically. The older I get, the less I like change. I'm more of a creature of habit than ever before. And yet God insists on bringing change into my life, because those things create a productive outcome. Jesus talked about this. In verse 28, God renames Jacob. In Luke 5, verses 37 and 38, Jesus said this, No one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. Some of the best stuff that God does in our lives is new stuff. New stuff, which means change, but change is scary. Now, when I say change, I'm not talking about changing the eternal truth of God's Word. I'm not changing my understanding of who God is. What I'm talking about is how I interact with my world, my circumstances, if you will. God uses those things to bring about His purpose. Lastly, struggles, swerves, and this is maybe the most difficult thing, scars. Scars. There are times when God will allow you to be wounded by life. There are times when God will wound you in life. But here's the amazing thing. Those scars actually leave you stronger than you were beforehand. Isn't that ironic? 2 Corinthians twelve nine. Paul had something wrong with him. He just refers to it as, as a thorn in the flesh. And it was really getting in the way of him being able to serve God, to travel to places he needed to get to, and to do the work he knew God was calling him to. And so he began to cry out to God. He began to beg him, please take this away. Interesting for a man who had the power to heal with a touch. He couldn't heal himself. And he asked God, and he asked God, and he asked God. You know what he told him? No. I like you the way you are. Your scars, your wounds, this thorn is for a good purpose. And how did Paul respond? He tells us in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 what God said. He said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. Paul understood that he could be the strongest man on earth and still get steamrolled by it. Or he could embrace the scars that God had given him and find strength in his own weakness. Why? Because the weaker we are, the more we realize we need God. And when we think we're strong, when we're, when we're like Jacob, and we're real good at trusting in our own resources, trusting in our own intellect, trusting in our craftiness and believing that, that we are sufficient, eventually God will allow you, if He loves you, if He cares anything at all for you, He will allow you to be cornered to a point where you will be steamrolled and your own resources won't be enough and it'll be the best thing that ever happens to you. It'll be just like when God touched Jacob's hip and he had to walk with a limp for the rest of his life. As a matter of fact, it was so important to Jacob that he taught his children and they developed a custom where they wouldn't eat that part of a lamb because they looked at it as being holy. What an amazing thing that they looked at a scar, a wound, a disability as a strength. How does this play out in real life? I'll tell you a story. A long time ago, there was an unseasonably hot and stressful day for a man named George Keith, who was at work in the city. And so when he got off work, he was in no mood for nonsense. He was driving home, as I'm sure some of you have before, angry, he wanted to get home. It was Monday and it was one of the worst Mondays ever and he had a busy and stressful day waiting tomorrow. So he's maneuvering through heavy downtown traffic And he's looking forward to the sweet relief of home. But along the way, his car started acting up, which was really annoying because it was brand new. It had become highly recommended. It was a BMW X5. And all of a sudden, it started shifting at strange times. Before long, it stopped changing gears altogether. He was stuck in low gear, and he had to creep along. He was getting honked at from drivers behind him, he was getting cursed at, he was getting scowls. Great, can things get any worse? He finally made it to the dealership where he'd bought the thing, but they were just about to close. One of the service techs came out and said, yeah, we've had some problems with this, but it's a quick and easy fix. We can't do it right now. But show up tomorrow morning, 8 a.m., and we'll get you underway real fast. It'll just be an in-and-out warranty repair, no charge. So the man thought about it. He knew he had a 9 a.m. meeting the next day that was very, very important. So he went home, and he started making plans for how he was going to get the car fixed and still make the meeting. He got up really early. He made sure that he used all of his navigational skills to avoid morning traffic, He got to the service department an hour early, hoping that he could speed up the process. As he got there, he could see all the mechanics who worked there were standing around drinking coffee and just gabbing and doing nothing. Great, he thought. I can get in, and I can get out early. He went to one of the mechanics. He says, hey, I'm here for warranty service. I need you to work on my car. And he said, sure thing. We open at 8. No, you don't understand. I really have an important meeting. I need to get there. I'm here early. They told me it's only going to take you a couple of minutes. Can just one of your guys take care of this thing? My name is such and such. Don't care what your name is. Don't care what time your meeting is. We open at 8. Have a seat. So we did. Fuming, pacing, staring at his watch for the entire hour. Eventually... 8 a.m. came. They drove his car in, and they did, in fact, fix it in three minutes. With that, he tore out of the facility. He flew down the expressway toward work. He had less than 60 minutes to get there, find an important or elusive parking spot, race up multiple floors to where his business was, and then get to his clients before they skinned him alive. But within minutes rush traffic hit, and he slowed down to a crawl. Everybody was trying to make their way into the city at the same time, and he was measuring progress in inches as time passed. But all he could do was just sit back and contemplate the missed opportunity, because he didn't think his clients were going to stick around. He knew how angry his boss was going to be. He knew much trouble he was going to be in. And so he just sat there fuming, and cursing until finally he heard something. It was a cacophonous noise and it buzzed right overhead. He looked over his shoulder and he could see the source. It was a commercial aircraft, flying lower than he'd ever seen before, thundering overhead, lumbering eastward. He watched in horror, as it flew right into the side of a building. It erupted into a ball of fire. Of course, the day was Tuesday, September the 11th, 2001. The aircraft that he saw was United Airlines Flight 175 out of Logan International in Boston. And the familiar location that it struck was Tower 2 of the World Trade Center, downtown Manhattan the very building that he was on his way to. Keith was an investment banker. His meeting was to be held on the 79th floor of that tower. When that aircraft struck, it immediately claimed the life of every person that he worked for, all of his clients, everybody on the floor. In the ensuing years, George Keith has actually spoken a few times and written about what he learned that day. And one of the things that he said is that he has learned to begin to look at life differently, with a lot more patience toward hidden blessings, whether it's a car problem, a clock-watching mechanic, or even a traffic jam. There are times when God can use things in your life that are unpleasant and maybe even scary and potentially costly to do something astounding. My prayer, dear ones, is that you would bear that in mind the next time you go through something difficult. And remember that what you really are wrestling with is not your circumstances or yourself or others, but with God. Father, thank you for your word. It is truth as we come to yet another anniversary of 9-11. We remember those who were lost. We also remember the heroes who did so many astounding things. We remember what it did for our faith, Lord. We remember what it did to unify us. We remember that it caused us to look up, Lord, and to seek you. May we do that again, and more importantly, Lord, May your people here remember that their first and truly only resource is found in you. Help us to stop trying to control things ourselves and to release control to you that we might gain true strength. In Jesus' name, amen.